So it's a pleasure to uh, welcome T.L. Taylor to our midst. T.L. is an American teaching in Denmark, living in Sweden. Yes. Um, <laughs> making the rounds. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of you know her work. Uh, she started as a sociologist working on virtual worlds and then shifted on to looking at multiplayer gaming and is currently busy in the area of both internet and game studies. Um, she has a couple of books that um, you should know about. One is Play Between Worlds, Exploring Online Game Culture, which came out with MIT Press in 2006. There's another book due out with the press any day now. Yeah, next month. Next month. Raising the Stakes, Esports, and the Professionalization of Computer Gaming. And in the fall, Ethnography and Virtual Worlds, a Handbook of Method, will be coming out. And it's a, it's a co-authored volume from Princeton University Press. It should be in the fall. Uh, TL's uh, degrees are uh, a bachelor's in sociology from Berkeley and a master's and PhD in sociology from Brandeis. So Just down the road. Welcome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks for the invitation to come today. I'm really looking forward to this talk, in part because it's of course, it's a talk on a subject for a book that's launching next month, so that's always a kind of interesting place to be at in a project. As William mentioned, I'm a sociologist. I'm a qualitative sociologist. I primarily identify myself as an ethnographer, and I've been working in internet and game studies for a while now, in internet studies throughout the 90s, and then I turned to game studies in about 2000 or so, and my work has lived in that domain for the last decade or about. I'm particularly interested in <coughs> social cultural aspects of network culture. And for me, this means not only an attention to users or players, but also really a serious consideration of larger structures, whether that's law or formal organizations that are shaping experience. So I see my work as being engaged not just with users, but also thinking beyond that. As I mentioned, my method is <coughs> qualitative, and you'll see that through the material I present today. My research has been really on spaces that are often thought of as simply fun, I'm going to use air quotes for that, or leisure. Um, and while they are certainly that, um, they also carry with them, I think, some of our core critical cultural conversations. And I hope that will be apparent as well by the end of this talk. So for me, analyzing these spaces isn't only about understanding certain forms of emerging media in and of itself and taking them seriously, which I do, but also understanding our contemporary network life, if you will. So in addition to understanding the richness of, for example, virtual worlds and games on their own terms, I've also done a lot of work in thinking about how they can be productive in exploring, for example, the interrelation between technology and contemporary life, how values work in design spaces, emerging forms of co-creation within network culture, work on gender and technology, the complex relationship between computation and human action, and the line between work and play. So I'm really interested in sort of leveraging what are often sidelined as kind of play spaces and thinking about how they are part of our contemporary cultural conversation. So I want to bring that same sensibility to work in the material today, presenting this uh, research from professional computer gaming. Uh, just to make it easy, shorthand, that sort of playing games in formal organized competitions for money. And I don't know, for many of you, this may be a completely novel uh, 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 thing to, to kind of come across. So hopefully I'll give you some framework to make sense of it. And as mentioned, the, the research I'm presenting today is in the book that's coming out next month. Um, so this research is really based on about eight years uh, of, of time I've spent in the field 
in this area called eSports and that's meant attending lots of national and international tournaments and most of the images I show you today are from my field work. So this is one of them from DreamHack, which is a, one of the biggest lands, land parties in the world. So, so attending a lot of competitions, interviewing all kinds of people involved in the scene, and that means players, team owners, commentators, league operators, the range. And also spending a lot of time looking at online sites, podcasts, <coughs> websites. In fact, when you study, and many of you probably know this, when you study network culture, you spend a lot of time looking at what are often thought of sort of tertiary sites where really that culture gets developed. Now, I want to give a little disclaimer to this project, and that is that I didn't come to this subject because I'm a huge sports fan. And I'm saying that as a bit of reassurance if some of you are also not huge sports fans. That was not what drew me to this work. Um, it actually came because I had been looking in my MMO work, my massively multiplayer online game work. I had encountered a style of play called power gaming. And power gamers and power gaming is often thought of as a very instrumental form of play, very socialized, but very, you know, involves deep knowledge of the system, often reverse engineering it dynamic goal setting, um, really trying to understand how the world wor works. And in fact, for outsiders, power gaming often looks like work. So there was something, I think, when my eye caught these eSports <coughs> players back in 2003, there was something resonant with what they were doing and what I was seeing in the MMO world. And that's how I, how I came to it. So the domain of eSports is really massive. And you know, feel free, I think we have enough time in, in the Q&A session for if, if, I, if I drop in little tidbits that you want to follow up on, feel free to ping me because it's a massive scene and it's a very emergent one and I can only give you a couple little snippets today. Um, and for today I want to break down my talk into two chunks, if you will. In the first se section I want to present you with a story about computer gameplay that I think we don't usually hear enough about. And that's computer gameplay as embodied and having a highly masterful quality to it. And in the second half, I want to shift a bit and focus on a couple of larger institutional structures in which that play is situated in, talking about some stakeholders beyond the players, so fleshing out two components. So <clears throat> when we use this language of eSports, and eSports is an emic term. It comes from the community itself to describe their activities. It's often used as a way of legitimating their activities, right, in a culture that might otherwise stigmatize or sideline computer gameplay. If you link it to sports, you often link it to something that's seen as valuable. Um, well, so when we use that language of eSports, we're of course referencing sport. And your mind perhaps turns to images like this when you think of sport and athleticism. Notions of sport are often tied to physicality, a certain kind of physicality and embodied action. Those things are themselves deeply interwoven with often complex conversations around gender, race, or class. They're often interwoven with idealized notions of particular subjectivities, and they're often very ideologically bound. Sport often also typically gets us thinking about how those actions and skills can be valued and evaluated or judged. And sport usually gets us into a conversation about formal competitive organization. Now, if you were perhaps a bit broader in your imagination of what sport is, your mind might have turned to even other images. Figure skating, biathlon, I don't know how many of you know about biathlons. I never encountered biathlons until I moved to Scandinavia. And it's all about cross-country skiing and then shooting. <laughs> so you ski and you shoot, and you ski and you shoot, yeah. Um, darts, of which there are many people who want to make arguments that darts are a sport. 
Um, so if you do a quick search online, you quickly find out that there's lots of raging debates about what really counts as a sport. And usually those debates center around issues about demonstration of actual skill or real skill. They center around ideas about meaningful human action or objectively measurable performances. So this debate about what's legitimate athleticism has always underpinned sports. And of course, I don't know if any of you know this is Casey Martin, famous PGA golfer. So you may probably know there are fascinating and long-standing debates about the relationship between technologies and athletic bodies. So Casey Martin actually pursued legal claims to be allowed to use a golf cart on the PGA Tour because of a disability. And a lot of people said no, because part of, part of golf is walking the green. So right, there are debates around how technologies get deployed. You may recall too, a couple years ago, Speedo came out with a new swimsuit that was heavily debated and actually regulated in the swimming community because it was seen as augmenting you know, authentic swimming action, if you will, in, in a particular way. So this relationship between technology and sporting bodies is longstanding. I'm not introducing anything new with that. But of course, what's happening now is we have folks like this entering the scene. And this is a guy named Stork, very famous StarCraft world champion. Some of you may recognize if you're fans of StarCraft. Um, and I think indeed what's happening is the notion now of computer gaming as a, as a sport is really coming to the foreground and it's intersecting a lot of these old debates and conversations. So I want to show you a little short clip of a um, game tournament now so you can begin to get a feel for what this looks like in an embodied space. This is a video, called, uh, a video about uh, e evolution. Uh, from a guy named Richard Lee, and this video was made in 2011. Evolution, or EVO, is a really popular fighting game competition. Um, it's been around in some form since 1995. When I did my research, pro fighting games had not really risen on the pro gaming scene in the same way as they are now, so I never actually got to attend Evolution. But I want to nod to Todd Harper, your very own Todd Harper, who has actually written a really fascinating dissertation on evolution. If you're interested in the subject, I recommend you read it because it's some great material there. So, so for this 2011 event, just to give you a little sense of scale, there were about 2,400 people there on site attending, watching and competing, but there were two million unique viewers watching it online over the course of the event. So this is, it may be a kind of, you've never heard of this before, but it's this kind of massive nascent scene that's growing. All right, so I'll just show you the little minute and a half of this video and hopefully it'll all work. Haters.
me if you want to link to the whole thing. It's a beautiful little three-minute video. In fact, I have to say, we were talking about this earlier. Um, when I saw this video, I thought, oh, I would really love to learn how to actually con convey scholarly arguments in this form in some fashion, <laughs> right? Because it's so evocative. It's such a powerful mode. I'm, I'm quite serious about this. I know a few, I think a few of you maybe work in documentary and doing, I'm very interested in this notion. Anyway, so, um, and if I had let it continue, there's actually a wonderful scene too where you see several people with their um, country's flags and sort of raising them in, in pride. <laughs> so there's interesting things too, sort of in terms of national representation. Okay, so for me, one of the things that's so striking about professional play is it really, I think, opens up the conversation for us about the nature of playing computer games. Because we have to wrestle with issues like mastery, expertise, and virtuosity. And I think these are things that are often not on the table when we're talking about this stuff. This isn't minor because I think it takes us into a heart of conversations about actually the nature of human action and technology. I think there are bigger stakes at work here. Games are, I would argue, particularly good at sharpening our focus on this interrelations between humans in context and computation to produce skill, pleasure, meaningful experiences, and sometimes pain and failure. Right? And I think part of what you see in this video is is that evocative affective side of it. So I want to highlight <coughs> several components of high-end play now that point to areas that we often don't discuss when we talk about gaming. And you know, forgive me, I'm a little bit shorthanding larger arguments that are in the book, but I'm happy to pull these apart more in, as, we, as we go on. So the first is this idea that computer gameplay is actually embodied play. Button mashing is not enough, though if you look at the high-end real-time strategy players who are doing 300 to 400 keystrokes per minute, <laughs> you sort of see what's going on there. But I think what we actually find when we start talking about embodied play is, of course, things like complex eye-hand coordination and dexterity. But we also would want to talk about how this activation of the visual mode and audio produce deep attention and focus. These things aren't happening through a blank screen. They're happening through corporal bodies that are mediating that experience. For pro players, it's also about managing your body in high-pressure situations. <coughs> situations of tension, excitement, adrenaline, those are all operating. And in fact, pro players will often tell you that you don't really become a pro till you play your first face-to-face -face live tournament because the safety of your bedroom sort of falls away and having to really negotiate the embodied experience of performing at a high level comes to the fore. Um, one of my PhD students, Emma Watowski, has really valuably pointed out similarities between esports players and traditional athletes in competition. She herself has an athletic background and so is very aware and been really sharp about addressing what this means to be engaged on site in competition. So you're performing in front of people, but you always kind of have to keep it together and use your body in masterful ways to win the game. And I think you even get a sense of this physicality in this video where you see people, this jump up, this focus, this mediation between these states, you know, sort of this tension between being on point and handling your play and the adrenaline. I think these qualities also speak to the really powerful affective nature of embodied play. It is something we feel in our bodies. We inhabit it in a corporal state. I often think too that probably as spectators we maybe even begin to sense this. I mean if you think about spectating others play, that feeling where you sometimes lean in and are drawn in, you may even be kind of, you get a little like I want to go play now, right? There's something that's happening at an embodied level of that experience. 
You also get a sense of the embodied nature of play when you talk to professionals about how physically challenging tournaments are. They regularly talk about exhaustion, headaches, extreme fatigue. One fighting pro player I, I talked to talked about after his last match winning it, coming off the stage and literally kind of collapsing into the arms of his friends because they're often playing for such long stretches. Of course, some, there's some partying in there too, but uh, that's not unfamiliar to tra traditional athletes either. So this kind of exhaustion and the way gameplay can work on the body. So I think highlighting this embodied nature of gaming is really important because we tend to tell incomplete stories if we overlook the role materiality plays in the digital. And I think that's actually a long-standing struggle going even back to internet studies in the 90s. Okay, it's not a pure story though because the body is actually pretty embedded in a complex relationship with technology. And so the second component I want to mention here is this circuit between corporal bodies and technologies. And I remember noticing this even at the first tournament I went to, seeing guys sit down at the, sit down at the machine, pull away the keyboard that was provided by the organizers, and pull out of their backpack their own keyboard and mouse. The technology really mattered. And so when you spend time at tournaments, what you see are special controllers people use in the fighting game scene. These are called sticks. You probably saw some of them. They're not sitting there playing with their Xbox and PS3 controllers. They're playing with specially created, you know, arcade-like sticks. Um, people regularly bring their own keyboard and mice, and mice often have weighted settings. And think for a moment, you're probably familiar with this experience too. Have you ever bought a new keyboard and you do this clicky tappy thing to see does it feel right does it give me the right response you know not all of us like the same keyboards because we have a sense of this embodied feel for it there's also um, types of monitors matter a lot in pro gaming whether or not you're playing with a CRT versus an LCD and in fact when you talk to pro players they talk about having monitor preferences in the technology and how the type of monitor changes the way the game feels the gun recoils in certain games feel differently based on the monitor and then, of course, things like game settings and configuration files. All of these, I think, speak to the ways elite play is mediated between corporal bodies and technologies. And generally, I think this means that pro players have a certain degree of what we sometimes call technicity. Ms. Dovey and Kennedy talk about this as particular kinds of attitudes, aptitudes, and skill with technology. Now, I want to highlight that this isn't simply about using technology and how you can use it. It actually is something more. It's something about the stance or the subjectivity in relation to technology. In the case of esports, I think we could, we could use Ellen Ullman's phrase of closeness to the machine, where this is a valued mode to be engaged with your technology. That tinkering, configuring your machine, setting up key bindings, all of these become really important components of masterful play. Okay, I want to up the ante even further. Because when you start talking to players, what you hear also is that style and tactics are contingent upon technology. This means that there's not simply a set form of play encoded in the software. Right? And depending on if you're in game studies, you know, you know, we debate right, the relationship between software and actual use. Right? How does play unfold? In fact, I think what you see in, in situ is that style and tactics emerge and mutate in relation to specific bodies and specific technologies in specific contexts. And this extends to the unseen, things like networks and infrastructure. Lag, for example, becomes really important in how gaming unfolds, right? So thinking about these technologies and materialities matter. 
One Counter-Strike player I spoke with talked really animatedly about this issue. He described himself as a very aggressive, almost hyperactive player, always on the move. And he said, when faced with serious lag, when I'm playing, he said, with really high ping, I can't get myself out of tight situations because I can't hit the shots. It causes me really big problems. I have to make a quick change to my play style and play very passive. I think this sort of disrupts this notion that the software gets out there, is handed over, and then we just all play the same way. There's a lot of other things happening. So the punchline, of course, is that high-end play is actually co-constructed between humans and non-humans, between human action and technology. And this, I would say, these interrelations forms the heart of ludic action. In this regard, agency is created amongst and between components. It doesn't reside in any single actor. So there's not simply human agency driving the conversation, nor technological agency. It is a complex mix. So that circuit, though, of you know, embodied action and technology isn't enough. You have a third component, which is this notion of skillful mastery. And this is where deep game knowledge, and by that I mean things like thinking about mechanics, weapons, classes, also strategy, tactics, and the ability to execute all that shifts somebody from being a novice to an elite player. And much of what happens in becoming a professional player not only involves deep systems mastery, but the repeated training and perfection of it as embodied practice. Right, so this comes through things like boot camps where people get together and play intensively for a period of days. Uh, watching and rewatching match videos. If you were to go online right now with a few keywords, you could watch some of the most famous matches out there and hear commentating along with them. Professional players build playbooks. They develop tactics. Um, they engage in regular practice, competitions, and skirmishes. Top players excel, much like the power gamers, at breaking down systems, reverse engineering them. And probably if there's one sort of defining stance or trait they have, it's that of testing, failing, retesting, testing, failing, retesting, testing, failing, retesting. Right? So what happens here is that you're training your body to work in concert with cognition. And this is key because knowledge really has to become embodied and naturalized for it to be masterful. These guys have to know so deeply the palette of actions that they can choose from that they don't have to sort of always be high level processing it in a match. Now we've probably, I think, all had that experience of having knowledge but not being able to embody it and execute it. And we perhaps have had the experience of having a physical skill but lacking the overview to kind of take it to the next level. Elite players bring these two components together. And I think part of what often happens when we think about computer gaming um, is that all of this complex action is often invisible to outsiders, right? We have a hard time seeing all of the skill, the refinement that's going into it. Because often what we just see is some guy at a keyboard. Maybe we have the experience of them killing us very quickly. But we actually don't experience, we don't often have a sense of all that nuance and sophistication going on there. As a side note, I think this actually raises important methodological questions, raises the bar a bit about what it means to really understand digital experience. All right, the final component I want to talk about in terms of masterful play is that it's not just these personal skills and your own engagement with the technology. That professional play is deeply rooted in mastering social and psychological components as well. And again, if you are a sports person, 
maybe this all sounds quite familiar. <laughs> all right, so there's, this is, I think, where it's really productive for game studies to be in conversation outside of itself with other domains. So when I'm talking, for example, about boot camps or practicing and watching playbacks, part of what I'm signaling is that players don't exist in a vacuum. But, and I did this riff with my EverQuest work, a riff on So Beauvoir, players aren't born a certain kind of player, but they become one. And they become it through complex processes of socialization in specific contexts. And this ranges. It ranges from learning what the linguistic norms are, you know, typing GG at the end of a match for good game, uh, all the way to what are the bounds and the norms of smack talking in your community. You know, what can you say that doesn't cross the line but is appropriate sportsmanlike banter. This also involves understanding more nuanced things, preferred stances in relation to the game. So what moves in the game are seen as most skillful or most useful or even aesthetically pleasing? Again, I think we don't usually think about these characteristics when we're talking about computer gameplay. What characters are tactically best and seen as most legitimate? What maps are most valued in your game? The other thing is, though, is it often includes learning how, always includes learning how to game your competitor, right? So the psychological skill involved in elite play. So again, one Counter-Strike player I spoke with, and Counter-Strike is a first-person shooter game. One Counter-Strike player I spoke with said, some of these people, the non-pros, haven't even like breached the mental game of Counter-Strike. They still have this picture of, you run around the corner and shoot this guy here. They don't understand why someone is able to constantly kill them. When you finally breach that barrier about really mentally defeating somebody, playing tournaments is so easy. And again, I think if, you're, if you've even listened to, sort of, I just listened to this Andre Agassi bio, which is actually pretty interesting. Um, you, you know, the kind of the levels of a psychological game when you're competing, I think this, this statement could have been made by a traditional athlete very easily. Final point I want to make in this little cluster is that for players on teams, there's an additional layer present. So if you're playing a game that requires, you know, several other people, you're also involving yourself in serious coordination, collaboration, communication. And this means things like calling tactics, having sort of strategies that are worked out. They're often forms of hierarchy, both formal and informal on teams and, role, and sort of mentorship roles. And also for the players that are operating at the very high end, they live on a kind of quasi-circuit, traveling from tournament to tournament. And in part, what they have to become is simply the kind of person that their teammates wouldn't mind being around for extended stretches of time, sharing hotel rooms with, sharing bus rides with, being on the plane with. Managing that social aspect is a, actually a crucial part of high-end play. And in fact, you often hear professional players talk about how you know, they know guys who are you know, terrific at the game, but they wouldn't cut it on the team. They could not pull off that level. So ultimately, what I'm arguing here very quickly is that becoming a professional player involves the social shaping of embodied expert action in concert with technology. And I think this is a domain where we still have a lot to do in game studies and unpacking and really seeing what it looks like on the ground. All right, now I want to shift gears here a bit because most accounts we have about esports generally stop at this player level. And aside a few scholarly articles, there's becoming more and more stuff out there on the embodied nature of play. But in general, you know, when you look at any popular press accounts, and maybe you've encountered a few of them, they really stop at this player level. Now, the focus on the player is certainly central. And I, of course, I can see why it's compelling. We can relate to it. It's a crucial part of the story. It's certainly a, one of the chapters in the book I have is, is on it. 
But often the focus on the player tends to dwarf further analysis, and so I want to just now give a little signal, a little waypoint about that. Because games exist in larger settings, even if you're talking about simply your domestic context in which you play your console device. And those larger settings have profound effects on how play in unfolds. So for me at least, professional esports ups the ante. I think on this because what we have to start looking at is formalized competitive activity that pushes us to look more, much more broadly at processes and institutions beyond an individual game player, even beyond their immediate community, even beyond their immediate technology. Professional esports is filled with all kinds of actors and interests that mediate how gaming unfolds. And I was alerted to this in the first tournament I went to. I went because I thought, okay, well, these players, they look like power gamers. It's familiar. Something seems interesting there. And I got there, and a guy came up to me in a suit, and he said, who are you? And I introduced myself. I, who are you? Oh, I own this team. Oh. <laughs> I didn't know there was such a thing as team owner. This was in 2003, right? So there's all of these other actors mediating this scene as it unfolds. And this ranges from referees and very complex rule systems. And I'm happy to chat with more about this. But what we're talking here, too, is rules that aren't simply articulated in the software, but produced over years of refinement in that community. If you go to the WCG, you can print out from their website you know, a, a, a massive document detailing all the ways they are modulating that game to make it playable in a tournament setting. So software doesn't equal the full rule set. All the ways, for example, spectatorship and broadcasting shape things, the role of sponsorship and advertising. You know, or a little bit, a slide or two ago, I mentioned this LCD CRT thing, right, and the preferences. Well, it, you know, economically, one of the things that happens at tournaments is they're often, at least in North America and Europe, supported by technology manufacturers. And what do those tech manufacturers want to do? They want to have the latest machines out on the tables. That means they're playing with LCDs. They often don't like LCDs. And so often, a few weeks before their tournaments, they'll all swap in LCD monitors and start repracticing in some ways to get ready for the next tournament. So the way these underlying infrastructures change the tournament itself. And then, of course, you have a variety of institutional actors, ranging from tournament organizers, team owners, and the game developers themselves, all of which are constructing esports play. And that's, that larger landscape is a large chunk of the work in the book is sort of beginning to map that out. So <clears throat> for the remainder of the talk, I want to focus on just one small case regarding some institutional stakeholders and how they're negotiating some conflicting interests. And then I'll conclude with a few words about some thorny legal issues, I think, right, or, or right on the horizon. I love thorny legal issues. They're always sort of hovering out there, provoking, uh, provoking us to think. All right. So in particular, for this next chunk, I want to ask, what happens when digital playing fields become a new domain of sports and leisure industry, and when commercial interests develop beyond that of just the game developer? This is actually a <laughs> a picture I took at an event that is now no longer around, but it was a really big league, heavily funded, well-placed, and you can see, I mean, it was this strange hybrid cross of a poker tournament meets a game show meets a gaming site. It was a, you know, and lots of production values. You see they're distributed through DirecTV. I mean, there was a lot going on with this thing. All right, so the case for today, though, <coughs> is <coughs> that of KESPA, which is the Korean Esports Association and Blizzard. And some of you may be familiar with Blizzard, you know, the makers of the hugely popular Warcraft, World of Warcraft, Starcraft line of games. 
All right. So the first part of the story to remember is that professional esports involves playing computer games and tournaments for money. Often those tournaments are broadcast, either offline via television or online via streaming archive video. And you know, I mentioned the two million people that were watching Evo online. In South Korea, though, this is really serious business in terms of broadcast. There are several 24-hour gaming channels dedicated to, to showing tournaments and doing lots of game coverage. Teams are sponsored by major companies, including banks and mobile phone operators. And this is quite different than in North American Europe, where esports is still mostly supported through technology manufacturers, right? In South Korea, it's mainstream leisure business, right? Um, you go to tournaments there, and there are tens of thousands of people watching, and many, many more watching online. Um, there's a very interesting side story to be told about South Korea. I, I won't go into it here, but they've had a lot of really strong governmental and policy support for developing computer gaming as a mainstream leisure activity, uh, including infrastructural things, you know, how, how much bandwidth people are getting and all of these kinds of things. So there's a lot of support there for mainstreaming computer gaming and esports. So to talk about Korean esports is always in a major way to talk about KESPA, this Korean Esports Association. And KESPA was launched in 2000 with the support of the Ministry of Culture and Tourism, a governmental body. And it's played a pretty central role in developing the culture of esports. KESPA does a number of things that facilitate pro, pro play. They manage and certify pro players and they work with amateurs. They maintain statistics, they run leagues. They provide referees and rule adjudication. They run and license tournaments, and they are involved in broadcasting and the allocation of broadcast rights. So they're a pretty extensive organization doing a lot of stuff. KESPA has a very long-standing relationship with Blizzard. Um, going back to the history of StarCraft and WarCraft in that country, KESPA was originally chaired by the CEO of a company called Handbitsoft, and Handbitsoft was basically the company that brought StarCraft to Korea. And I don't know if, it, if you've spent any time in South Korea, you, you may have a sense for how popular these games are there. They're wildly popular. So whether you love or hate KESPA, and esports fans usually have one strong opinion or the other, they're undeniably important to what esports looks like today. So the case at hand. In April 2010, Blizzard announced it was breaking negotiations with KESPA, citing intellectual property concerns. Mike Morhaime, one of Blizzard's co-founders and the CEO, stated in a public uh, announcement that, that the company was shocked, quote, shocked and disappointed to learn that KESPA had illegally sold the broadcasting rights of StarCraft tournaments without their consent, and that for them, this constituted a violation of their intellectual property rights. Now, given the centrality of both KESPA and Blizzard in esports, this caused a lot of debate and concern. And, you know, the forums were filled with people almost you know, sort of a la Kremlin trying to unpack the underlying threads between the different statements that were coming out. Uh, esports a few years ago had also undergone a lot of tumult. Some of the biggest leagues had been closed. A lot of hope that had been placed in esports was kind of crushed. And so people sort of had this happen and said, okay, well, what's, what's really going on with esports? I mean, do we really have a scene that's going to grow? So the news sent a lot of speculation. For some people, it ignited a long-brewing frustration with KESPA and KESPA's really role in handling esports, its influence. KESPA heavily manages Korean esports. 
For other people, there was a kind of concern, a latent concern about Blizzard that got brought to the surface. So the esports community was already pretty upset that Blizzard had decided to not put LAN functionality into StarCraft II. Now LAN's local area network, so LAN functionality is really important if you know we all want to bring in our own machines right now and play a tournament together. Blizzard's been increasingly centralizing how their play operates. So you have to go through their central servers, you have to go through some registration process. So the community was already kind of a little bit worried about the power Blizzard seemed to have in the scene and changing the nature of their play. And folks wondered, you know, what could it mean for esports if these two major companies, game devs on one side and this quasi-governmental organization on the other, were wrangling over their playing field, right? Because in moments like this, you know, gamers who maybe have invested thousands of hours of playtime and often have nascent professional identities, you know, they aspire to become a new kind of athlete, are caught up short and reminded that those play fields are actually subject to ownership and regulation that are well beyond their control. So I was fortunate enough to be able to speak a couple of times with a guy named Paul Delabita, who manages the esports group at Blizzard, as well as a guy named Jay Chin, who's from Kespa. These were complex conversations because, of course, neither wanted to directly speak about the issue at hand. So there was a lot of talking around it. And the account I'm now going to give you is a, is a combination of my interviews with them and then material that you can pull from websites. And so, you know, it's always a little bit of detective work when you're doing this kind of stuff. So given the dispute was about, was stated as residing in IP concerns and Blizzard's feeling that Kespa had overstepped its bounds, I just straight up queried Delabita if at its heart this was just a money issue and Blizzard wanted to get paid. So this is one snippet. He said, nope, it's not just about money and I'm just going to read the blue parts for you. We really just want acknowledgement of our IP. It's as if someone in Korea painted this amazing painting and then someone in the United States, say, took an image, you know, a digital version of that painting, made postcards and sold it without acknowledging the rights of the painter or giving them any consideration whatsoever. You know, we wouldn't think that was fair. Now, this acknowledgement of IP is actually pretty standard practice. Intellectual property, you know, rests on this idea that you're constantly asserting and reasserting lest you lose it. So that's actually not so interesting or surprising to me. What catches my ear about this quote is this idea of being given consideration. I think it actually speaks to something a little broader than straight IP formulations. Now, Blizzard is actually one of the most proactive and supportive of game developers out there in relation to esports. They're actually really engaged with the community. They run tournaments. They're very invested in building esports in some sense. Some sense. In other conversations I had with Delabita, and with a different public statements you can find them making over the years, I think there's a more complex picture that emerges in relation to esports. So he several times emphasized that they're a game developer, they don't want to be in the esports business. He's, he explicitly said, you know, we don't want to be FIFA, right? But he also signaled that they clearly have an interest in how the scene develops. So he talked, for example, about wanting to support players, making sure that they got paid in the tournaments and were treated well. He also had interesting things to say about how the game itself is played. So I don't know, how, has anybody here played World of Warcraft? There's always a few. Okay, so you probably know in World of Warcraft, you can mod your UI. Maybe many of you do. It's pretty much the norm now. So Blizzard has made their game so that people can download one of the many, at this point, tens of thousands of little pieces of software other players produce and modify their UI. And I've argued elsewhere that modding your, your, your UI isn't just kind of like changing the 
changing the face of the icing on the cake, it actually changes gameplay in a really significant way. And so he noted, in fact, that they prefer tournament play to take place unmodded. He said, playing modded kind of takes away from the skill level. That's just not how the game was meant to be played. That's not the way the arena system is specifically designed. This is a PvP component. Now I think this is interesting because these concerns about how tournaments are run, how players are treated, and preferred modes of play goes beyond narrow IP claims. It speaks to a broader set of stakes they have about the growth of esports. One that involves a vision of a healthy player community, good competition, and preferred modes of play. Now KESPA, on the other side, also has a fairly expansive formulation of its own work in the scene. If you'll recall, I gave that extensive list of the activities they do, certifying players, running tournaments, broadcasting. They certainly don't see themselves as just licensing a title from a game developer, right? Going to Blizzard and say, we want to license, some money has changed hands and now we're done. Perhaps one of the most interesting things, I think, in KESPA's vision of what they do is they say they are willing to examine and evaluate titles for a developer so that if that developer wants to get into esports, they can grant it approval as an official KESPA title so they can go then host official leagues. I think this is really fascinating because in some ways it flips the power relations around a little bit. While they agree they need to be engaged in formal licensing with Blizzard, they also have a model where they authorize and legitimate play, not just Blizzard, where game developers can come to them for approval. And that's a different power relationship than a straight IP formulation would have. Given game culture has especially recently, I think, been underpinned by a culture of developer EULAs and end user license agreements, terms of service, removal of access for perceived violations. I don't know if you've been following in the game, in the game community now, but there are systems whereby if you're posting something on the forums that you get banned for, they're actually banning access to games you already purchased because systems are becoming quite centralized. So. And this overall ethos of the rights of the developer guides the conversation. It's probably no surprise that at some point we would see a third party come into conflict with a game developer. And I think one statement that KESPA made really highlights an important critical point in this. And again, just pull out the blue quote here, where they say, they wrote, if a game achieves success as an iconic esports competition and the developer pursues profits by declaring that their copyright is valid in the sports industry as well, then that's a large obstacle for esports growth and the establishment of a future sports entertainment industry. What I think they're actually asking here is a much broader question, which is what happens when a property, in this case a computer game, becomes a significant cultural entity, right? When it escapes the bounds of narrow authorship and IP formulation, can the people, other than this, just the narrowly defined IP author, claim a legitimate or strong stake in it? And I think, of course, here, we'd probably usefully nod to legal scholars like Rosemary Coombs, amongst many others, who've problematized the implications of these over overly narrow legal formulations when we think about the ways intellectual properties come to inhabit, circulate, mutate, alter in culture. Now, ultimately, Blizzard took their licensing deals to another organization. As far as I can tell, that organization sublicensed back out to KESPA, so the loop isn't entirely broken. But there remain really interesting questions here about what this means, not just for Korean esports, but again for me, you know, these legal cases, these nascent legal cases, the ones that even don't go to court, provide interesting waypoints for broader cultural conversations. What we're faced, I think, with this case is not simply an intra-corporate battle 
for example, FIFA or Major League Baseball wrangling over the handling of their own teams and games, but fundamental questions about the very nature of the digital playing field as potentially opposing third-party stakeholders are involved in constructing it. I think we've done a good job actually in game studies so far, mapping out some of the skirmishes between developers and player communities. I think this adds another component to the puzzle, which is a third-party stakeholder as well. I think when you run this up against this consideration of meaningful human action I set up at the beginning of this talk, we enter into really difficult terrain. What's clear to me is that there's a kind of esports ecology we need to pay attention to, and I'm using this word ecology with a nod to, folk, to Lee Starr in particular, something I think we could more usefully pull into game studies, in which the co-creation of professional computer gaming is unfolding via a variety of actors some of which are not always human, <laughs> some of which are technology, and some of which are institutional. It's not simply that a game developer makes a game and hands it off to a player, their community, and off they go and create something. Game developers provide an initial base field, but there are many other factors that intervene in constructing playable, sustainable games, and I think increasingly those are going to involve commercial third-party actors. So I want to highlight now, in closing, just a few areas I see interesting and provocative test cases that may emerge. As this case makes clear, there's still big issues at stake in the broadcast and licensing of games. I don't know how many of you have encountered watching games on your television, um, but there are really interesting issues that still haven't been quite worked out. Sports has long dealt with this issue. For example, we could think about regional regulation of sports broadcast. What's particularly interesting to me here is the notion that companies might assert a kind of right to roll up the playing field and take it home. Right? Um, this gets even more complicated, of course, when we look at other emerging media that are making regulation tricky. I don't know how many of you are familiar with sites like Ustream, Justin TV, or even cloud, computing, cloud gaming services like OnLive, where on these sites people are putting up live streaming of a variety of events, including their own play. If we were to pop on Ustream right now, we could watch any number of people from around the world just doing massive broadcasts of their gaming. Some of, and some of those people are actually under contract to teams. So we can quickly see, I think, how elusive the notion of broadcast even becomes and how tricky control looks. And of course, traditional sports are also struggling with this. Ustream, Justin TV are notorious for people taking traditional sports broadcasts and rebroadcasting them through here to get around regional regulations. There's also this issue of the regulation of the field, as I've been calling it, where questions about rule sets, game configurations and setting, modding, all of these things that are central to what the playing field looks like and counts as legitimate play. While players and their communities are innovating play in interesting ways, there are other strong institutional actors who are increasingly invested in that regulation as well. So we can see Blizzard has some feelings about how its game should be played in tournaments. The same time, tournament organizers, league owners, outfits like Kespa also have a stake in how that game is getting played. And so this construction of the playing field, who's authorized to govern it in tournaments? Is it going to be players? Is it going to be leagues? Is it going to be game developers? Is it going to be refs? Is it going to be broadcasters? Remains a really interesting in-progress issue. Finally, I think we can also turn our eye back to those creative players I started the conversation with and talk about how they and their play are situated going forward in this new sports industry. And I've dropped this term industry in here, but I think it's a sort of interesting one to, to play around with. There's two prongs I want to just quickly flag with this. The first is around player action. 
players produce extensive and creative tactics, strategies, playbooks, knowledge bases, sets of action. And many of them innovate, actually innovate how a game is played. I'm reminded, for example, um, of a really, I don't know if you know Henry Lowood's piece, but he's written beautifully on esports. And he has a terrific example of when he was a referee at the WCG, seeing a really famous player by the name of Grubby do a move that nobody had seen before. And it left the crowd breathless, and it changed the way that game was played going forward. I think sometimes we don't imagine this when we're talking about computational systems, that you could innovate play in them. Who owns all of this? I mean, you can actually right now go online and buy tactics and strategy guides from top players. You can even hire them out to train you, like a tennis pro. Who owns all of this player action? Does it reside with a game company who created the initial field of play, the player who creates it and perfects the tactics, the team they're contracted to? Does it even make sense to talk about ownership of these things when we see that they actually emerge via a really complex and messy set of relationships between games, players, technologies, communities? Before you think that sounds far-fetched as a, as a thought experiment, there's already a very robust area of sports law wrestling with how to situate athletic action in terms of creativity, patents, and intellectual property. I, I don't know how many of you do yoga, but in the last two years, there was a major legal debate about whether or not yoga moves could be patented, for example. Right? So this debate often circulates around how much sports performances can be thought of as artistic, creative representations, how much they can demonstrate newness or innovation. I think if you buy my arguments at the beginning of this talk, it means we probably have to weave computer gameplay into this conversation, and it's probably only going to make it more messy. <laughs> All right, the second prong I want to mention in regard to players is this issue of player representation. One of the best things you see at tournaments is how much fan culture surrounds these players. You know, this sign was stork. And in fact, North American and European players love going to Asia because they are treated there as, you know, rock stars and sports athlete heroes. I mean, they just eat it up. Players build powerful reputations through their gaming, and they also face really important issues about their rights as athletes. There's a long body of legal scholarship around the rights of athletes in terms of the rights of publicity. You have guys, this is Tom T. Squared Taylor, no relation, who is one of the biggest MLG console game players who was on Dr. Pepper bottles in the last several years. You know, these athletes, these esports players, become lucrative properties in and of themselves. They're built on commercialized game systems and often complex league structures. Sometimes players have clear contracts about them. This, very often, they don't. And so there's still a lot to happen in this domain. Just to add one more additional layer to complicate this thought experiment, we're not just talking about the representations of corporal bodies. What about players' avatars and recordings of their in-game performances, right? We have this dual embodied nature here. Who has authority and ownership over them? The players, the teams and their owners, the leagues they play in, the developers of the game. We ran an eSports conference. We've done this a couple years now. We've invited in top professional players and league owners and all these folks. And this question got raised. One of, the, you know, one of the main pro players was sitting in the audience, and somebody turned to him and said, you know, do you own, do you own that video of when you played that match? And uh, everybody sort of, well, I think I should, but I'm not really sure if I do. It's this very interesting open question. Is it enough to say that the game company owns the playing field, or is a meaningful shift created when we start talking about expressive player action? 
So far, most players are really just generally grateful to have contracts to be able to play games that they love, even if it just means getting paid to travel there and not earning the salary. So the professionalization is still pretty nascent, and you don't yet have players fighting for certain kinds of rights. All right, I've taken you through a very whirlwind tour, I know. Um, a big part of the eSports story certainly involves developing our notions of expert computer action, expert computer play as embodied in relation to technology, built on complex systems of expertise and mastery, and always, always, always socially embedded. And at the same time, I hope this little tidbit on the Kespa Blizzard case shows all that creative, terrific player action exists in much more complex structures, institutions, and very nascent legal formulations. It doesn't exist simply out there on its own. As we move into an era where digital playing fields would become more and more common, I think we face some big questions, not only legal, but how we will come to understand creative human action in digital spaces. Thanks. So, Tiel, thanks. That was terrific. And really raises, I think, the central question of homologies in emerging areas mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in every, I mean, just yeah, in, yeah, yeah. In, in every way. So, thanks. So, as usual, um, please speak into the microphone because this is being recorded. Um. Tiel, thanks. Um, yeah, the, I, there are a few things I wanted to ask about the sort of uh, context of esports. Yeah. Um, and uh, I guess I'll start with, you, with, with, with this one. Um, uh, understanding the participants' um, uh, um, uh, insistence upon this as being a sport, mm. it's a little bit unusual because, you know, we we don't think of ourselves. If, I mean, if I go play soccer, yeah. you know, I don't think I'm a professional athlete, but I think yeah. I'm playing a sport. If I play Team Fortress 2, I don't think I'm playing a sport, yeah. actually. Yeah. Um, <coughs> so <coughs> there's a different perception in terms of the amateur engagement with these yeah. and professional. Um, and uh, that, you know, you know, one of the things that led me to think about was another type of uh, professionalized uh, activity with spectation, with, uh, uh, with commentary, um, not, uh, not to think of uh, FIFA, but to think of FIDE, to think of chess, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because that's an activity people <coughs> call a game, like, like these other things, and yet, uh, I mean, obviously, you'd want to associate yourself with something more successful, <laughs> right? If you, if, you were, if you were doing this, but from an analytic perspective, yeah. is there something to that? Is there a connection to yeah. chess play and activity yeah. and, and yeah. how it works? Chess is interesting because it's actually listed as one of the. Uh, it, it doesn't appear in the Olympic Games, but it's listed on the list of approved Olympic sports. <laughs> so there's actually a long-standing debate in chess about whether or not it's a sport. Um, I think, I, and I probably, I'm moving over this quickly for the purposes of this talk, but in the book I actually tease out a little bit more the debates and internal struggles about linking with sports in eSports. It's a pretty significant part of it, and as I said, it's an emic term, but there are people for whom that is not, it's an, an easy reference point, because for them, sports evokes things that are oppositional to gamer and nerd culture, and that ranges from thinking about kind of identity and lifestyle to thinking about forms of masculinity, for example. So I've a little bit given you the gloss that it's, it's not the 100% accepted term, but it's a term that often gets deployed very strategically, as I said, to legitimize play that would often be seen as stigmatized. So if we can call it a sport, it feels like, it, you know, I can explain that to my parents, right? 
Right? It's often when you bring home the check from your first tournament. Right? Okay, now I sort of see where this is going. So it's a complex term, and it's one that the community, I think, struggles a lot with. What, is it, what does it mean to call this stuff gaming and not? I remember I was telling somebody this earlier. When I first presented some of my esports thinking in a course, a number of the students were really repelled by it. They did not like thinking about their, their love and passion within the sports frame. That was a, that was a, a move that really left them uneasy. So it's, it's a very complex, uh, complex node. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's actually one of the interesting things about mm -hmm. it because it doesn't have, sorry to yeah. podcast, but because it doesn't have a proprietary dimension at mm -hmm. all, which is the basis for most of this discussion, mm -hmm. you think that if you did compare it to mm -hmm. chess, you would learn something else. Mm -hmm. uh, interesting point. Already looked yeah, yeah. Great point. Yeah. Thanks. So my question was um, very similar, but drawing on. Um, Another case, which would be professional poker, which yeah. <laughs> has undergone this yeah. sportification, if you will, especially um, on TV. Yeah. Um, and in that case, it's interesting because often the players will have made names for themselves mm -hmm. online, yeah, uh, playing online poker, but then they show up and play yep. um, live poker with actual material cards. So yeah. I just wondered whether you'd yeah. thought through the case of gambling. Yeah. And I'm also just a, a side note. Um, ties into the chess example as well. Recently, one of the top professional poker players has been sort of set up in this deep blue kind of dynamic where right. they're designing the computer program that plays against him. And, yes. and, and then that's a whole other kind <laughs> yeah, of interesting yeah, yeah. interaction between technology. The node to poker is a really interesting one because you actually have a certain segment of the, the high-end esports players who are actually avid poker players and some who have moved from esports professions to playing poker solely online or solely in tournaments for that's what they do that's how they earn their money so it's actually one of those um you know esports is funny because it's still i think trying to figure out what it is reference points get deployed in different ways so sometimes it's sports but often when you talk to example broadcasters or people who are engaged in tournament con commentating they use poker as well if poker could do it you know poker came up with that lipstick camera so if we can figure out the technological things if we can figure out poker you know the poker did it is a really interesting uh, moment. And in fact, when I'd go to tournaments, there was another term, I don't have a picture here to show you, but there was another tournament I walked to and I literally thought, this is exactly like a poker stage. They even had like sort of fake flames and kind of Vegas-esque setting. Um, I think they're still trying to figure out where their main reference are, but you're absolutely right. Uh, poker's a, a powerful site to also use. Uh, thank you very much for the talk. Yeah. So I have a question that takes uh, this uh, move from the online world uh, yeah. uh, of competition uh, that Natasha just mentioned, yeah. uh, maybe one step further, which is about uh, games in which you have uh, autonomous agent as one of the, the players. And yeah. so uh, to see if you have any, any thoughts about that. So an example would be, say, the bot prize. You say create yeah. a bot and then have a human judge in competition or RoboCup, where you actually have people program two autonomous agents that then go in and, and compete and how that might change some of these Absolutely. dynamics. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because, in fact, it, you're probably familiar the the uh, game the game folks out at us at uh, uc santa cruz the michael mateus's lab have been they have a graduate student there who's been working on trying to create i think it's a starcraft bot who can play at a high-end elite competitive level and they keep having a again it's very reminiscent of the old uh, deep blue and they keep having kind of practice skirmishes where they'll bring out professional players and get them to go one-on-one -on -one. i mean one of the things that i think is interesting in esports i I interviewed um, John Romero, 
And he talked about this moment where most players decide, you know, if I really want to push my gaming to the next level, I need to be playing other people because other people are the better, the more interesting competitors. But of course, these projects like are happening in, in Santa Cruz, um, what's going to come of it, I don't know. For me, now we may be getting into too complex terrain, but um, I'm not sure if you Harry Collins has done really interesting work looking at AI, SDS guy, where he talks about the distinction between polymorphic and mimeomorphic actions. And one of the things people are really often good at and computers aren't so good at is the kind of sophisticated cultural nuance, right? The sort of deep understanding. And this isn't the old AI embodiment argument. This is about culture and social practice. And I think there for me, it begins to become an interesting open question with AI is how that stuff is, can you have sort of polymorphic action and what that would really mean in a professional scene? Right. I mean, it's, it's not only a player action that... Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not only player action that, that is transformed, but also, I mean, there's spectatorship around yeah. these robotic competitions. And so some of the other kind of frames and analyses that you made might be, in, in, and it's also often academic competitions a, a, as well, rather yeah. than uh, the, uh, the kind of sports framing. So yeah. it might be a kind of a related area that, yeah, that their, your, their insights could have a lot yeah. to uh, bear upon. Yeah. Oh, I feel like I could ask you questions for I know, years. We could, we could talk for um, <laughs> I can say that I'm really looking forward to the ethnomethodology book, especially. Oh. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that we could use all the help we could get with methods when it comes <laughs> to digital games. Um, the one question I did have, though, is if you, how would you characterize how game studies as a discipline, yeah. um, as loose a coalition as it is, um, can benefit from the findings that you've had in the esports arena? Or maybe another way to say it is, how would you take this stuff and now apply it to, um, to games that are kind of outside the esports mm -hmm. arena? I think there, there are three nodes that I think we could use more work on. And there are more than three, but three nodes that come from this work. I think we need better accounts of this issue of embodied play. I think we've really missed it on this one. It's, and it's no surprise. I think it's a struggle, again, methodologically. What is embodied, how do you get at methodologically embodied play when this is what you see? It's a very complex analytic thing to parse. I think the other thing we could do even more on, and it's something I've tried to do in this book, is really bring in stuff that we can leverage from STS and thinking about non-human actors, the interrelation of technology, and not doing this kind of simple, there are humans and there's technology and humans use technology, but the really deep interrelation, the, the co-construction of agency across domains. So I think that's one. And then I think actually just we need lots more stories that get into these broader institutional, organizational structures of play. I mean, for good reasons, I think most of our accounts, including my own, have, have looked a lot at the player. And that's been the kind of, you know, there's a player and there's a game. But players and games exist in complex networks that go well beyond this kind of individualized relationship. So those are at least three themes I've tried to really push in the work. And, and I think game studies, we'd all benefit if we had more of that stuff. All right, so this is a question from a non-academic yeah. communications manager here. Um, but um, I was wondering, are there other kinds of frames that interest you mm. um, for games? Because as you were describing it, particularly early in the talk, um, everything you were saying, if you took away scorekeeping and competition, mm -hmm. sounded like music and musicians. Mm. When you had yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, people who were trying to teach, teach each other and learn Absolutely. things from each other, um, 
little little like travel trips to go around yeah, on a yeah, circuit. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, the legal issues of uh, many different parties and interests conflicting mm -hmm. with each mm -hmm. other. And um, embodiment, I think, too, right? And, and very much stuff. so, yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm wondering, like, are there other ways that, if yeah. you're going to take your research just on a, on a yeah. tiny different fork, yeah. would there be things you'd like to follow? You know, there's one other body of literature that I, I pay some attention to in the book, um, and there's there's this branch of, so there's, a, there's something called leisure studies, which we don't encounter so much in the US, I think, but it's very vibrant as a domain in the UK, for example. And within leisure studies, there's a notion of serious leisure. And serious leisure is an actually really interesting domain um, because it tries to help us understand you know, people who engage massive amounts of not just time, but often money and energy and identity into things that we think of as hobbies. So there are great papers out there you know, on karaoke as serious leisure or you know um, kennel shows and dog you know what it was dog breeding and raising as serious leisure and so for me I dabble in it a bit in the book but this guy Robert Stebbins this sort of stuff on serious leisure is I think a very interesting way to navigate that space between professional and amateur engagement so that might be one um. As you talked about the legal, the struggle between uh, Kespa and um, Blizzard, it strikes me that the Blizzard, at least, is walking into a frontier <laughs> in which arguments are going to start emerging that rule sets are copyrightable. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. How far down the road are we? And because uh, that seems to be like a very yeah. scary place. Yeah. Um, well, for me, it's it's. In I mean, it's interesting too because. When I look at my data from the tournaments, rule sets, I mean, computational rule sets in games are a fraction of the, the rule sets that actually get deployed. So if it comes down to that, wow, we're not even really talking about how players are actually engaging with their community. It's a very provocative question. And again, there's one, there's, you know, the sports literature often wrangles around with this as well. The other thing, of course, is that rules are not fixed. I mean, rules shift in relation to technologies and relate. So you can look, for example, about once you start broadcasting something, the rule sets often change. And we can see this in traditional sports all the time, right? <laughs> um, so the model that somehow rule sets can be distilled to the computational rule sets and that they can be fixed is, I think, it just doesn't match actual practice. Of course, the gap between law and actual practice is often huge, right? <laughs> so, so that's no out. <laughs> I recently had lunch with the developer of uh, chess boxing. Oh, okay. And two things where the IP is open and they're trying to recontain it through the broadcasting yeah. trick and through the tournament yeah. and branding uh, shells. So there's yeah. a, but 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 it makes me also think just to pursue this line a bit. Um, so here's a case in Korea. You're working a lot in Europe, yeah. and the, the IP domains and notions of, for example, authorship and creativity, mm -hmm. which we don't really have so much in the States, mm -hmm. but in Europe is still sac mm -hmm. sacrosanct. Are those playing out in any kind of significant way with uh, with games and these issues of, yeah. are we playing in the mall or do we actually? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean, going back to my MMO work, I mean, I think I first stumbled into this domain of intellectual property with my, MM my massively multiplayer online game work when Back in 2000, I saw people trying to sell their avatars, right? Because they had spent hours and hours of play and they had value. And the game company saying, that's, that's not yours to sell. <laughs> that's our intellectual property. Um, and then players doing all kinds of creative things saying, I'm not selling you the avatar, I'm selling you the time it took me to get the avatar. So this, I mean, 
games and intellectual property, there's lots of thorny stuff going on there, and it goes all the way back. And for me, what was interesting about the esports case is we've had, there's actually a, a fair body of scholarship now on MMOs and IP law and MMOs and sort of governance. What was interesting to me about this is it was a third party. Um, we have, there's been a few cases of that in MMOs, like companies who are selling gold, and then the game developer comes and tells the company you can't do that anymore. But for me, this one was interesting because it brought in this other actor onto the scene, but it's a big issue. And again, as more and more companies are centralizing your play through a you know, online login system that you have to connect with, you know, so all of your games produced by game developer A go through their online system and are regulated and your forum name is associated with that account that owns all your games and if you get banned on the forum, right, I mean the trails of ownership and governance are getting, I think, uh, a bit more scary and scary as we go, so, but it's a long-standing issue in game culture. Um. First of all, thank you so much for, 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 for the talk. It was awesome. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about the pros and yeah. as well as the institutions around them, both, both the, the companies, the, the develop as well as the government um, entities and the sponsors. Um, I'm wondering about fan activity, yeah. specifically in relation with this whole colonizing of the sports thing, because mm -hmm. something that happened this year, although I'm not, um, this past year, um, although maybe there are just precedent that I don't know of, it was this um, the invention of Barcraft. The the we're going to take over a real sports bar yeah. and bring esports there, yeah. so that people who know who want to go in there and watch football have to watch it on the small screens yeah. because it's you know. And it's a real growing movement. It's quite yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, so but I'm wondering if there's if there's precedent for that sort of thing, or that like, let's take something that's pr that's traditional sports and actually invade it, so that we're in regular sports fans faces on yeah. a sort of fan level, not on the yeah. competitive level. I mean, uh, I can't think of anything in terms of the bars, but eSports roots are really in land communities, right? eSports roots go back to, let's all get together, bring our machines together, and okay, let's have a competition, and oh, maybe we can get some sponsors. So this idea of fans having ownership and investment in the scene is part and parcel of eSports going all the way back, I think. Um, but one of the things that happens is as tournaments get formalized, as they get broadcast, as they get money behind them and these outside investments, sometimes what happens, for example, is games get picked to be played at tournaments that fan communities go like, why, why the hell are you playing that game? <laughs> like, that's not our game and why they're playing it is because there's money and there's deals and maybe it's easier to broadcast. This happened, for example, with the Championship Gaming Series, one of the big leagues I mentioned that folded. They picked up a version of Counter-Strike that was not really supported in the community. People didn't like it. There's two versions of Counter-Strike and they picked the one that people weren't super keen on. They picked it because it was better broadcast material. And the fan community, you know, the, uh, okay, well, there's often sometimes this feeling of like, okay, well, for the good of esports, you know, I guess we'll, we'll take that one, uh, you know, like this investment in wanting esports to grow sometimes leads fan communities to maybe struggle with or modulate down their own passions. But the barcade thing I think is quite interesting and I, I can't off the top of my head think of a, let's take over the sports bar. And <laughs> yeah. So speaking of going back to land parties and thinking about the context in which this type of play arises, so it's, uh, it seems that, I mean, you showed these, these all pro and sort of all gamer sorts of events, but uh, there are other events, particularly I would think in, in your 
neck of the world um, in Northern Europe, right, where there'd be, for instance, a demo scene activity. There'd be sceners and gamers. And so I'm wondering what the uh, connection is between esports and professional gaming and the demo scene. So I, I can't say about the demo scene specifically because I think of that as a very particular thing, but I'll give you one anecdote. Um, when I first went to DreamHack, now maybe, this is this massive LAN party. I mean, I think I went again this year. You know, we actually took a machine again this time, and you know, it's over like 10,000 people sitting there playing, right? The first year I went to DreamHack, maybe it was 2004, 2005, and I talked to the organizers about eSports. And they said, yeah, some people really like them, so we're trying to kind of accommodate them. They had a World of Warcraft tournament on the side. Yeah, okay. It's, um. Then I went again. I just went that time just as a, a casual observer. I went back a few years later, and they actually had a formal tournament structure in place, and they had sponsors, and Swedish TV was there and recording and broadcasting. It's, it's a LAN party in Sweden. Okay, I went this year, eSports everywhere. So one of the things that's happened is it's grown in the community, but there's lots of ambivalence. So a lot of the old-time LANers are like, you know, this is a community thing. <laughs> this is about us playing our games. We don't need superstars. We don't need advertisers. There's a real ambivalence in the community about it. And there's often an ambivalence amongst LAN organizers themselves about the role esports to play. Because LANs, I, I, I wrote a paper with my, my uh, PhD student on DreamHack, actually. And one of the things, one of the ethos of LANs is that it's kind of, you know, we're all in it together demonstrating, showing, performing our geek identities and gamer culture together. And the idea that you would somehow have kind of this elite cream of the crop that would come in doesn't always sit well. So yeah, it's a little fraught still, but there's big money in it and it, it is taking over a lot of the spaces. Sorry, Fox, you had your hand. <laughs> Thanks. I, I have a, a question about uh, implications for design. And okay. so it seems that I mean, this opens up a kind of fractal possibility in some ways for game design, which is that if uh, games become sports, there could be sports games based on uh, playing games as sports. But it's also a kind of serious idea because there are implications, say, for example, designing for uh, home spectatorship, when people yeah. play with, with a Nintendo Wii or the Kinect, right, yeah. there already is a sense that we're watching each other play, yeah. play the game or Dance, dance Revolution. So, uh, and, and so the game designers might make accommodations for players watching each other as, as they play. And then also there are games like uh, Shemue, in, in which you already play a game inside of a game. Uh, right, right, right. Uh, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> the Space Harrier. So do you see any game designers taking up some of the ideas from esports competitions and thinking about mm -hmm. the conditions for play, for example, involved? embodied technologies. Yeah. Okay, so two things come to mind with this, and you know, I'm, I'm not a designer, nor do I, I, I never sort of make design predictions, but two things come to mind in your question. The first is that, especially amongst tournament organizers and league owners, there's this kind of dream belief that we could create the perfect esports game from the ground up. We could sort of figure out what all those components are and make it, and there have been several attempts to do this. And in fact, now there's even a, a version of Counter-Strike called CS Pro Mod, that is meant to address it as an eSports artifact. In, I don't know about CS Pro Mod, but in general, these ideas don't work. <laughs> because part of what, at least right now in the eSports community, is it's still very much a grassroots-based, you know, skilling people up through the amateur scenes, skilling people up through their just passionate play. So there is this dream of like creating the perfect title. 
But the flip side to that, I would say, not the flip side, but the other thing that comes to mind is I do think game developers have paid woefully little attention to the role of spectatorship in gaming. I mean, it is actually amazing when you look at it. And that's everything from can your game pipe out a feed so people who aren't sitting at the computer can watch it, right? You know, can you have an observer mode? And again, it's no surprise that Blizzard has done well because Blizzard often puts that stuff in so you can actually have observer modes. I actually think this is, maybe if I would add to, to Todd's question to me earlier, this is another area where game studies hasn't done a good job. What does it mean to spectate computer games? What is that, what is that about? It, it's rife, it's something we do. So I think both game studies and probably game developers have not really thought about that spectatorship. It, but it's so pervasive in game culture. One of, the, one of the images I use in my book is actually this terrific shot of an arcade in New Zealand from like 1970. It's, just not, it's not an arcade, it's a ferry terminal with an arcade machine and the kids are all gathered around it and there's somebody even sort of hanging over the top trying to look, right? That, that spectatorship quality of computer games, it's been there from the beginning, but it's often a little untapped, I think. So. Hi. So first off, thanks. I thought that was really wonderful. Okay. Um, I'm sort of fascinated by what I see as a tension between kind of the impulse towards individu individualization on the one hand and standardization on the other, and then how that sort of plays out across the hardware-software divide. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the contradiction that seems to be there is that uh, you know, it's a big part of, of sort of high-level players' identity to perform that ritual of unplugging the stock keyboard and pulling out their fancy pro keyboard and, you know, going up to stage to the stage with their fighting sticks and that sort of thing. Um, but then the, the, the way in which those devices are marketed, I mean, there's, there's a lot of claims to performance that, that are wrapped up in that, you know, the key repeat and what the resolution of the mouse would be. Um, but then there's also, it seems like, a, a huge emphasis on maintaining the purity of the turf in, in the software sense of, you know, we don't mod in a, in a competition setting, we don't use cheats. Um, so, so, so sort of the question that I have is, how does that play out? How do players justify the fact that they're kind of, um, you know, they're not only using these devices that make claims to giving them greater capabilities in the game, um, but that, that also seems tied in with their identity as a pro gamer. And then also, where do exploits fall in in the sort of <laughs> the modding, cheating curve? You know, just you were talking about creative play. Mm -hmm. Like, what's the, is that just seen as sort of okay creative play, or is that seen as, you know, <laughs> right. damaging yeah, the purity yeah. of the turf in some important way? Yeah, it's a great question. I think one of the things that highlights is it's not a stable field. So I think it's over time the community sorts out what counts as legitimate. And they don't always agree. So there were actually, one of the things that I think is so fascinating when you go to these tournaments is how many rule disputes you encounter. I mean, you'd think they've been playing this game for 15 years. Surely we've worked out what can be done and can't be done. And yet there are still moments where the community, you know, somebody does a tactic nobody saw before and the community has to go like, hmm, okay, are we gonna allow that or not, right? In the case of keyboards, you may recall, you know, world of, there's, there's keyboards out there that can be programmed, right? Well, those, there, are, there have been keyboards that have been banned from use from like World of Warcraft because the game designers see the keyboard as overstepping the bounds. So my answer is that it's actually not stable enough to say, here's where the bright line is. They're constantly negotiating it. Um, and I think you're pointing to something else too, which is that relationship between the way play, play practices both get stabilized but then erupt in innovation points. I mean, it's fascinating to me, if you talk to, if you talk to top Counter-Strike players, they will tell you the game is not played the same now as it was 
15 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, which is remarkable, right? So there are moments of stabilization and then these eruption moments and then it tries to restabilize. So it's messy. <laughs> It occurs to me that an, another analogy worth exploring is extreme sports. I mean, yeah. when you think about when you're playing football or baseball or basketball, it may be a folk game, but on some level, you're sort of playing in a world defined by the professionals. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So you know that the NFL has defined what football is, no matter how you choose to play it right, on the front right, lawn. But I think the tension that extreme for sports felt about uh, becoming an Olympic event was yeah. they had created the sport and suddenly someone was going to own it. That's right. And I think that may be a factor that's, right. that's at work here too. Yeah, so this is one of the links I, I trace out a little bit, so I think you're <laughs> is uh, the sort of relationship between lifestyle, what are often called lifestyle sports, so skateboarding, early snowboarding, you know, all of these things that exist on this kind of very grassroots, also very oppositional to ideas of ownership sometimes, right? And also at times having forms of masculinity that may not map to the most traditional forms of athletic masculinity. So yeah, you're absolutely right. There's, there's an interesting comparison nook there. Thanks. Uh, just to, to follow up from what, I'm so sorry, I don't know your name. Sunny. There we go, mm -hmm. to follow up from Sunny's question. Um, something I've been wondering recently and I would like to hear from your observations of yeah. uh, you know all this ethnographic data you've got, where sportsmanship kind mm -hmm. of falls here. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been really fascinated lately with, um, if you know League of Legends, this tribunal thing right. that they've got going where uh, they leave it to the community to judge the bad sportsmanship behavior right. of the people that get reported for being bad sports. Um, we can talk more about that later, but yeah. I'm just wondering, you know, where does, especially in the sense that you've got, um, you know, uh, in the fighting game community, you've got people like uh, Daigo and Justin mm -hmm. Long and, you know, um, Alex Sanchez and people who are I iconic figures, right? Yeah. And their personalities become part of this consumptive process yeah. and the yeah. spectator process, actually. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know as much about um, kind of the rest of the esports yeah. field, but I'm wondering if this, you know, this notion of being a good sport and performing, mm -hmm. performing the actions of sportsmanship uh, factored into the things that you saw. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I think one of the things that happens is people become socialized into what it means to act, act as if you are a good sport, <laughs> right? Um, and that looks different in different communities, right? Different communities have sort of different norms, the GG norm at the end of a game. Or I remember at one tournament I was at, um, one of the things the tournament organizer said they struggled with is, Tournament organizers often also have a model of what the good sportsman is. So they're broadcasting, and at the end of the game, they wanted the players to kind of get up and walk to each other and shake hands, which had no, it had no traction in the, in the community itself. That wasn't a norm there. And so they were constantly having to struggle to kind of re-professionalize these players as they hit the broadcast circuit, right? But I think, I think in your own work, Todd, you've also written about this idea of, you know, people having to learn what the preferred modes of play are in their communities, like which characters are actually seen as illegitimate to use, right? So, you know, each community really negotiates its own context of what counts as a good sport, what, what's considered the boundary of cheating, what's sort of pushing it. I don't know that I could say there's one answer for all of these sports. I think they all, they all struggle with them in their own little, little ways. Hi, uh, thank you for your talk, yeah, thank and thank you for quoting Andragas's bio as a oh, nice book. Oh, it's interesting, <laughs> huh? Yeah. It's a very interesting book yeah. about the role of uh, mind gaming in tennis. Yeah. That's a yeah. thing that we and I think so. Last week was a Nadal versus Djokovic uh, tennis game with 
uh, five hours and uh, 30 minutes wow. of matching. Yeah. It's a psychological game, not a physical yeah, game. Yeah. But uh, when you're talking about the rise of esports games, I was thinking about... Uh, Sorry if you. I know that some people don't consider mixed martial mixed martial arts as right. sports, but uh, there's interesting thing about MMA that there's a lot of leagues, and uh, I think so. The most popular nowadays is Ultimate Fighting Championship mm -hmm. UFC. Yeah, that was a brand started by Gracie Family in the 90s, uh -huh. and then Dana White acquired it uh -huh. and bumped it to big. It's a huge mar market nowadays, it's a huge business. Yeah. Uh, I was reminding of, uh, sorry by frame this way, sorry, radical games like skating and other stuff that got bumped after ESPN uh, created the X Games. Yeah. Uh, they don't have a proper league. Yeah. They have a lot of leagues. But yeah. uh, when there's a strong focus, uh, TV or a brand supporting it, uh, mm -hmm. it rise and people mm -hmm. say, oh, this is a sports. Right. I think so last night, uh, there was this weekend was uh, Winter X Games, something like this, mm -hmm. and Sean White broke a record. And yeah, everyone that's right, he did, yeah. Yeah, and everyone was tweeting and uh, sharing yeah. the videos. Uh, I don't know if the same st uh, stuff with Caspa yeah. is like... Uh, they will be surpassed by another uh, leg or other legends. And every time we do a comparison, and I'm looking forward to your book, mm. you made any comparison to these new sports, mm. how they are a lot of leagues, a lot of yeah. sports, and the role of some big leagues bumping up some stuff. Yeah, it's been a very... Uh, it, it was interesting to actually start this project in, in 2003 because it's probably been one of the most tumultuous decades for esports. Um, because leagues have risen and fallen and leagues that had a lot of money and hired, you know, basically hired all the players and decimated, you know, t teams that had been there before and they hired everybody fell apart. And in some ways this dream that if esports, you know, you know, a lot of times in the scene there's like, if we could just get it on TV, people will see. And then it gets on TV and it doesn't always work. So now the community sort of saying, well, maybe is television really going to be our main mode? Maybe we're going to be an online sport. So there's all of this uh, flux, constant flux. Um, but I think you're right in pointing to some of these newer sports, the edgier sports. I mean, the X Games example, you know, how those are, again, often powerful reference points for people where they'll look at them and say, well, look, if, you know, if BMX biking can make it on ESPN, what? surely we can, you know, right? It's just, surely we can. So it's... Yeah, it's a really interesting, and, and the sh I, I, I literally almost put Sean White in this talk this morning because I, I was just, you know, snowboarding was embattled as a real sport for a while, right? People, people still, if again, if you go online right now and Google snowboarding is not a sport, you will find people saying snowboarding is not a sport, right? So, and now it's in the Olympics and he was on the Colbert Report the other day, and yeah, so... Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting time in esports, again, because it hasn't settled. It hasn't, I don't think it's even quite figured out, you know, what it wants to be, where it wants to be. There's really diverse sets of stakeholders at work. Um, so I want to ask a question about masculinity, but I don't know how. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Do <laughs> girls play? That's sometimes the starter question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I, uh, you know this yeah. is, it seems to me that I mean, every single photo, you know, is largely dominated yeah, yeah. by 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 men, and I'm. Um, it seems to me uh, there's obviously tons of social factors preventing, uh, not maybe not preventing, but dissuading uh, uh, women from joining the space. But video games should be the one space where a separate women's league should not be necessary. Yeah. You know, um, and uh, yet, yet that. Uh, 
yeah, the, the the community and the companies and the institutions don't seem to be making much headway right. in that. So. so yeah, it's I um it's actually something I delve into in one of the chapters because it's a, it's also a really complex issue to talk about because sometimes we conflate women with femininity <laughs> or men with masculinity. So there's a lot of complex theoretical ter terrain there. Um, there are women who play high-end competitive esports. It's a very difficult road for them. Uh, primarily, unsurprisingly, for infrastructural reasons and structural reasons, right? They, are, they have to face a certain kind of gauntlet that many people face, but it's very often very misogynistic. Sponsorship and funding works in complex ways, and there's this very strange thing that happens to in the esports scene where people will often say, there's kind of two sides to it. Some people say, and I swear to you, <laughs> some people say, well, you know, men used to be hunters and women were gatherers, so men are naturally better at shooting games and things that require precision. And I'm, there's even a, a, a game developer who I really like who has written this in a book, right? So there's this sometimes these kind of very wonky pseudo-scientific explanations. On the other side of it, there's uh, an argument that says, well, you know, we could have a, we could have a girl on our team, but none of them are just none of them are good enough without really unpacking systems of mentorship friendship networks, access, you know, all of the ways you get on a team. Again, these are not a surprise if we look at traditional sociology of sports literature and you look at what women face when going into athleticism. So it's complex. One of the things I do do in the book, though, is I think one of our mistakes in game studies is that when we talk about gender, we tend to only talk about women and femininity. And so I actually spend a lot of time trying to talk about masculinity and the performance of masculinity in the scene. I think it's something we need just in general more of. And it's complex, right? Because again, for some of those competitors, the masculine identity reference point is the athlete. And for some of them, the masculine identity point, and it's a complicated one, is the nerd or the gamer. And those are often not easily aligned. <laughs> so um, I'm happy to tell you, it's, a, it's, it's very complex terrain, and there's still a lot of battles around it. Um, and I think the scene hasn't quite settled on. Because <laughs> um, one of the things that often happens is sometimes there's preferred forms of masculinity that, are, that seem to be put forward, and then you go to the tournaments and you go like, as we know, right? Okay, none of these guys actually live up to that form. And there's great work in gender around, you know, Connell and hegemonic masculinity, right? Certain form of masculinity that sort of speaks its name constantly, but nobody actually can measure up to it. <laughs> so um, it's a really important issue. Um, but I think it's an important issue in game studies in general that we need more attention to. So it's the short version. It's <laughs> yeah. Okay, I think um, it's we have to close bring this to a close in terms of the time. But if I recall your schedule, you've got an open. Yeah, I think I have an hour and a half. So I'd love to. So Teal has a chance to have a sandwich, but also hang around if you want to keep yeah. talking. Yeah. Um, thanks very much. Thanks very really much. A, a Thank you for all your time.